All right, I want you to bow with me now, please, as we go into the Word of God today. And uh, I want you to make this song your prayer. Please bow and listen to these words and make them your prayer as well. speak pour down like rain upon us father as we open your word now help us to truly appreciate and understand the greatness of this word the significance of being able to have you speak to us today through this word in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. This series of messages, especially studying for this week's message in particular, have given me an even greater sense of appreciation for the Word of God. And I believe that I have a good appreciation for the Word of God. I believe my perspective on the Word of God is what directs me and as a believer, as a preacher, as a pastor. I love the Word of God. I honor the Word of God. I believe it's God speaking. I do. And this passage today addresses this issue in a wonderful way. And I hope that it, God the Spirit will use His Word today to impact you even as it impacted me. We're dealing with the second chapter now of 1 Corinthians as we continue our exposition verse by verse of this fascinating epistle, 1 Corinthians. And I've entitled this particular passage, I had four or five different titles, and I'll show you why as I go along. I've entitled it, Why and How Paul Proclaimed the Gospel. If you notice, this is a historical title, if you want. It talks about the person who is writing and why he is writing. Now, if I had to do it from a homiletical point of view, in other words, if I just wanted to give it a title, to give it a title, you know, I could say something else like, why you should listen to the preacher who preaches the word of God as the word of God, because that's what Paul is talking about. Paul continues to emphasize the fact that both the wisdom and the power of God are contained in the message of Christ crucified. Remember, that's with the focus in chapter 1. Now, Paul is still speaking directly to those at Corinth 
who were focusing more on the messenger than on the message that they proclaimed. He wants to show them that to focus on the preacher leads to divisions, whereas to focus on the content of the message they preach leads to unity within the local church. He begins this section by describing, and look in your Bibles, please, at verse 1. He begins this section, chapter 2, by describing the nature of his proclamation of the gospel. Verse 1 says, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with superiority of speech or of wisdom. That's how he begins this fascinating section of chapter 2. Now this morning, I'm going to give you a short course in biblical hermeneutics, the science of interpretation of the Bible as we do our exposition of this chapter, or at least as far as we get in the chapter today. I'm going to use the first verse, and maybe the couple of others, as a template or pattern for doing effective Bible study and why I lay out the passage the way you see it on the screen. I'm going to be doing this as a pastor teacher, one who has a biblical obligation to teach or to equip the members of the body how to study the Bible. Now, we have had courses in this. We've done it in Discovery. We've done it in Teleos. So it's not that it's not being offered. We are doing it. The fact is not all of you are taking advantage of the opportunities. And so I figured we'll do it this morning to give you a little taste and little idea of how much more effective your reading of the Bible would be if you just have a knowledge of a little technique, if you want, or strategy in doing it. So this will be a template, and then as we go through the passage, I won't do it as I do it now, because you will see why I'm doing what I do. Did you understand that? Okay, let's begin. Notice how it begins, and when. Now when you see and, and is a preposition. Many people don't regard and in reading the scriptures too lot. But and can signify two things, either addition or sequence. Addition means this is number one and this is number two. Sequence means I am going to teach and preach. It's the idea of sequence, not just addition. And when answers the question of time. Whenever you go to scriptures, you are always to look for the timing of the event. Is it past? Is it present? Is it future? Here, Paul begins this, and when. He's giving the time. He's going to clarify it later, but he's talking about time now. He says, I came. Here you have a subject and a verb. I is the subject, came is the verb. It tells you what, what the subject did or is doing or will do, right? Now, when you read a passage of scripture, you are always looking for the main statement. 
In other words, take out everything in the passage and you'll just have one statement left and you'll have what the author is saying. To do that, you must look for the subject and the verb because every main statement must have a subject and a verb. Got it? I came. That's a main statement. Now, you'll find several main statements in a passage. You need to look at those main statements and to see what is the main, main statement. In other words, what is the big idea? What is the central thought of that passage? We'll see what that means as we go along. He says, I came to you. Now, this answers the question, where, and in this case, to whom? I came to you. Who are the you? Corinthians. We could also say you were Corinth because they were in Corinth. So right away, we're hearing here, Paul says in the past sometime. How do I know is the past? Because it says I came. It didn't say I am coming, so it is in the future. It didn't say I have come, meaning it's now. I came. So Paul is stating a historical fact. Sometime in the past, I came to you at Corinth. But he doesn't stop there. He says, brethren. The brethren modifies who? To you. So right away we know that Paul is writing this epistle to believers. He is not writing this epistle to unbelievers. Because the you who are at Corinth and are Corinthians are brethren. See what I'm saying? So right away you know that this epistle is not addressed to the unbeliever, but is addressed to the believer. I came to you, brethren. Now, he returns to his main statement because he sort of digressed. He comes back. I did not come. Subject and verb again. But now he turns it into a negative statement. I did not come proclaiming the testimony. Now look very carefully with this. This is what we call a negative statement. It describes something he is about to say. What does he say? I did not come to you proclaiming the testimony. Now if you stop there, you would have Paul saying, I did not come to you proclaiming the testimony, right? But that would be taking Paul's words out of context. Now he did say that, but he didn't stop there. He didn't just say, I did not come to you proclaiming the testimony. He goes on to say, I did not come proclaiming the testimony of God with superiority of speech or of wisdom. What I'm trying to show you is this. If you stopped at the point where Paul says, I did not come to you proclaiming the testimony of God and stop, you would have just the opposite of what Paul was saying. You understand what I'm saying? But sometimes that's the way people use the text. They stop before they're supposed to stop to get the main statement. And if you don't get the main statement, you'll never get what the author is saying. So then, he uses two modifiers. First, he says, with superiority of speech. And second, of wisdom. These words modify the testimony of God and how he presented it. 
They describe the manner in which he came proclaiming the testimony of God. So, it is now very simple to conclude that Paul's main statement in this verse, the core of what he intended to say is simply this. I did not come proclaiming the testimony of God with superiority of speech or of wisdom. That's what he's saying. That's the main statement. He's saying what he did not do when he came to proclaim the gospel. All right. That's a template. Let's go back now to do the exposition of the text. Paul is explaining the nature of his proclamation of the gospel. We can only derive that after we have done a good study. He is describing the nature of his proclamation of the gospel. First he says that his proclamation was not a demonstration of polished oratory or human philosophy. He begins with a negative statement as, he sa as we said. When I came to you, brethren, I did not come proclaiming the testimony of God with superiority of speech or of wisdom. Now, proclaiming carries the idea of announcing or declaring. He announced, he declared as a fact the testimony of God. When it says the testimony of God, it shows the source of the testimony. Of shows source. The testimony that has its source in God. The testimony of God has its source in God. And so he's saying here that the gospel that has the cross of Christ at its center and core is the testimony that comes from God. The gospel is a testimony that comes from God. It therefore clearly reveals that Jesus is God. Why? Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is the testimony of God. And if it's the testimony of God, then it tells us that the gospel of Jesus Christ comes from God because Jesus Christ is God. A lot of stuff can be found if you just look at the propositions. Now, Paul affirms that he did not proclaim the gospel in a way or with an attitude that highlighted or promoted his oratorial skill or human wisdom. The very things that the divisive, selfish believers at Corinth were fighting over. In fact, a lot of people still fight over in churches today. That's why you have some people who come out to hear certain preachers and not others. They're not looking at the message being proclaimed. They're looking at the messenger who proclaims it. Paul says that's at the core of the visions in the church. Their choice reveals that they are seeking to hear the preacher, not to hear a message from God. Paul underscores this as a basic reason for divisiveness and prejudice in the Corinthian church, and it's still true today. Favoring man rather than the message that the man preaches. But then Paul goes on to explain the reason for his method of delivery in verse 2. First, he says, it was to keep first things first. Notice 4. 4 indicates reason. Whenever you see the word preposition for in scripture, look for a reason. This is the reason for what was just said. For, 
I determined to know Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the main statement. All the other words there, nothing except among you are modifiers. You could take all those out and still get the core of the message. What is he saying? I determined to know Jesus Christ and him crucified. We could say this way. I determined to know alone Jesus Christ and him crucified. The intentionality of Paul's preaching was to proclaim the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Nothing more, nothing less. That was the good news. That was the gospel of Christ. That was the message that Paul was preaching that he says contains the wisdom and the power of God. Paul was not interested in debating the qualities or characteristics of the other servants of Christ. He was not sent to do that. He said that he was sent to proclaim that Jesus Christ was God's son, specifically and uniquely appointed and anointed by his father to die for the sin of the world on the cross of Calvary. That's the word of the cross. That's the message of the cross. That what Paul was sent to preach. That's why he could say in another place, woe is me if I preach not the gospel. That's what he was sent to do. He determined to keep first things first. That's why whenever we get away from preaching this word, by the way, when he used gospel, the word gospel and takes in the entire word of God, not just that Christ died and was raised and so on. The gospel is the word of God, the whole counsel of God. When we get away from this, we are not proclaiming the message, the wisdom, the power of God. We're proclaiming our own truth. But not only that, another reason why Paul preached the way he did was because of his realization of the seriousness of the task. Look at verse 3. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Paul's weakness may refer to actual physical ailments. It appears that Paul was a sickly type of a person. That's why he had a doctor going with him, Dr. Luke. And his illness, whatever it was, seemed to have affected the way he preached. He alludes to this in the second letter to the Corinthians when he records what they were saying about him because these Corinthians were saying all kinds of bad things about Paul. Second Corinthians 10.10 10. For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. That's what they were saying about the Apostle Paul, who was sent by God to preach the gospel. He writes powerfully, but he looks and preaches like a nerd. That's what they're saying. He also mentions his illness when he wrote to the Galatians. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. So Paul seemed to have had a very weak appearance when he preached. And he didn't use the right words. He didn't use the words that many of the Corinthians wanted to hear. But his weakness may also allude to the fear he mentions next, along with the much trembling. Notice what he says. Fear and in much trembling. I believe that this is a description of Paul's spiritual condition as he stood to proclaim a message that he realizes is a manifestation of the power and wisdom of God. Think for a moment. Suppose Jesus Christ would come in here personally and give you this book 
and say, now I want you to preach this. And I want you to know this is the power and wisdom of God. How would you preach it? Do you think you get it? All right, now let's see. Let me see. I can look out here. Let me see. Well, let's talk about this. You know, well, the Bible says this, but let me tell you something else and you go from the Bible. Would you handle that like that? Would you take this Bible and just read one verse and then talk about all kinds of psychological points to tell you how you not to be emotional, not to be how fearful and all of that? Would you do that? But that's how a lot of us handle the Word of God. We do not handle it as being the power and the wisdom of God. Paul realized that this was the power and the wisdom of God. And I believe that he shook in his boots every time he preached the Word. The way I do. You say, you're crazy. You don't shake in your boots. You don't know. You don't know how much pressure this is. On a person who believes that if I say the wrong thing here, somebody could go to hell. person could leave his wife or husband if I interpret something wrong here. If I preach something wrong. If I give psychology rather than the word of God. When I'm finished here, I am exhausted. Say nothing about when I am preparing. Don't fool with me. When I'm studying the Word of God, I'm serious about this. Because when I stand here, I want to be sure as much as possible that what I am proclaiming to you is the Word of God. Because that's the power and the wisdom of God. Paul, I believe, is expressing here how he felt when he proclaimed this word of God. He was spiritually anxious because he did not want to mishandle this divinely precious but solemn message. He was not out to please man as an eye service, but he wanted to please God as the one to whom he would have to give an account for and to give an account for every word that he preaches in the name of God. That's why James says, don't let too many of you Presume to be teachers, because your judgment is greater. And I'm afraid of that. I'm scared of that. Listen to how Paul describes the nature of the gospel and its impact upon the hearers in Second Corinthians chapter 2. This is what he says. Listen carefully now. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Do you get that? This, when the word of God is preached accurately and for what it is, it gives a sweet aroma of Jesus Christ as we come to know about him and manifests through us, the preacher, the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Christ in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Listen now. To one, an aroma from death to death. To another, an aroma from life to life. That's true every time the word of God is preached. The sum is going to be an aroma that leads to death. But going to be an aroma that leads to life. That's why he says, who is adequate? Who is sufficient for these things? 
Meaning, who is sufficient? Who is adequate to proclaim this Bible? That's what he's saying. Who is adequate to proclaim this Bible? That's why some people ask me, in the morning, I want you to preach in the evening. I say, no, I'm sorry. I can't. Why? Because I'm not prepared for it. Basically, Kathy just reminded me the other day, I got thousands, literally thousands of messages in my cabinet. I could pick up a message anytime and read it off to you. But I don't do that. Because I want God to speak to me every time I speak to you. Or before I speak to you. It has to be renewed. It has to be refreshed. Why? Because I'm handling the power and the wisdom of God. And I don't take it lightly. Paul didn't take it lightly either. Notice what he says. For we are not like many. Way back then. Peddling the word of God. Peddling. Selling the word of God. Do we have that going on today? Sure. It's being done by people who really don't appreciate what this word of God is. They peddle it. We are not like many peddling the word of God. But we do so as from sincerity. As from God. We speak in Christ in the sight of God. And that's what I pray for. That's what I strive for every time I preach the gospel. That I might be doing it in the power of Christ in the sight of God. That's what happens when you really understand the nature of the word of God. And your understanding of the nature of the word of God will determine your nature of preaching the word of God. I am ashamed and embarrassed by the way I see some so-called preachers handle the word of God today. I really am. And I just pray that God will save me from doing the same. But then Paul goes on to say that the way he preached the gospel was because it was a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Notice verse 4. First, he makes his point negatively. He states it negatively. He says, on my message. Now, you see that word message? Don't overlook that in studying the word. You've got to study. What does the word message mean? The word actually means a discourse, a private discussion. Notice the other word. And my preaching. Two different ways of expressing the word. My message means private discourse, referring to Paul's personal or private conversation. My preaching means public declaration. Public proclamation. So he's saying that every time and in everywhere and in every situation, when I speak about the gospel, here's how I do it. I do it not with persuasive words of wisdom. Now it contacts it means being manipulative or using my own fancy words just to make you feel good about it. He says, no, no, no. Whenever I preach the gospel, whenever I talk about the gospel, I do it. A certain way. Why? Because he appreciates the nature of this gospel. When he gets with his friends, he don't fool around with the gospel and make jokes about it. He don't make jokes about Christ dying or Christ being raised or Christ being buried or he doesn't make, he don't make jokes about it. He says whenever he does it, he does it in a certain way. He never does it in a fleshly way, in a way that shows that he wants to manipulate people to his way of thinking. In other words, he never employs psychological word traps or human philosophy to gain acceptance or approval of man when he spoke about the gospel. 
No matter where it was or to whom it was being spoken, he he spoke it the same way all the time. He's talking about being manipulative about the word and doing all kinds of things to get you to accept it. You see, that's one reason I get criticized for this. I detest long, drawn-out gospel invitations that seek to play on the emotions and crisis times in the life of the hearers. Oh, yeah, I know you're pain. I know you're suffering. I know you don't have any money. Come to Jesus. I believe that's manipulative. The only reason why you should come to Jesus initially is because you realize you are a sinner condemned for hell, and without him, that's exactly where you're going. You've got to be convicted of sin, not that you're broke. Now he states his point positively. He says, but, that's a contrast. Whenever you see but, it's a contrast. He's going to say something directly opposite to what he said before. My preaching, that's the, notice I put it in brackets because that's the implication. It isn't repeated, but that's what he's saying. My preaching was in demonstration of the spirit and the power. My demonstration was in, in my vocabulary, in my oratory. My preaching was in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. In other words, I was showing how the Spirit of God works in a preacher who understands what he's preaching. And he preaches for what it is, not the word of man, but the word of God. That demonstrates that the Spirit of God is working his power in and through me. That's what he's saying. And so the implication is clear. When the gospel is preached in a manipulative, compromising way, simply to gain a positive response from the audience, it is not being done in the power of the Spirit or of God, but in the fleshly power of man. That's what this passage is telling us. But what is it that most Christians look for when they come out to hear a preacher? They don't look for the deep things of God. They look at the flashiness of the preacher. They won't know what next joke he can tell. Search your own heart. See if that is not true or not. See if you really come out yearning to know about the deep things. Paul is going to talk about that right now. Or any of you want to come on now? What did he say now? I hope you finish before a certain time anyway. Man's way is to seek to persuade by human wisdom and psychological and philosophical manipulation. God's way, however, is to demonstrate his wisdom through the power of his Holy Spirit. That's what he's saying. That's, my, that's God's way. That's why he uses the weak. That's why he uses the humble. That's why he uses a humback like Paul could have been. History tells us that one of the most powerful sermons that was ever preached was preached by an old fella with thick glasses. When he preached, he actually leaned down like this so he could see. And that's how he preached. And he was preaching on hell. And when he preached that sermon, not looking at his audience, not looking at his congregation, like we are commanded to do when we take in homiletics. Not looking at them at all, but just reading like this. He says, as he read his sermon, the people were actually crawling under the seats, crawling over the seats, falling down before God, crying out for forgiveness. If he would go to a seminary and say, that's the way I preached, I would laugh him out. But God used that in a powerful way to save many souls that evening. But now Paul explains the reason for his seemingly weak delivery. Look at verse 5. 
So that, that gives you reason. Whenever you see so that, that gives you reason or purpose. Whenever you see so that, reason or purpose. So it can give us a reason or purpose for making a statement. So that your faith, now notice how I have it stated there, your faith would rest on the power of God. That's the main statement. All the other words are modifiers. The way it reads, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of man, but on the power of God. What he is saying is that your faith would rest on the power of God. That's his main point. He's saying here that when we place faith in the word, let's be sure it's in the word of God and not in the word of man. And I'm saying to you, many people today are placing their faith in the word of man. And many people think they're saved and they're not. Paul, though, says, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. I ain't going to try to trick you. I ain't going to be manipulative. I ain't going to play all kinds of songs just so you could feel sad and come forward. Mm -mm. I'm going to proclaim the word and let the spirit of God do his work. In other words, Paul is saying, I preach the way I do because when you respond to the message that I deliver, I want you to be certain that you are resting your faith not in me or my ability or my likability or not, but rather that your faith is in, based upon the wisdom and the power of God. To put it another way, and these are the words that I have used repeatedly from this pulpit myself. I say it like this. I want to be sure that you respond to the genuine gospel of Christ and not the psyched up gospel of man. That's it. However, Paul was so strong on denouncing human wisdom when preaching the gospel, and he fears that his readers might conclude that there ain't no wisdom in the gospel at all. So he now seeks to clarify what he said. And he begins a beautiful and remarkable explanation of the wisdom of and in the gospel message. And this is one of the most beautiful passages of scripture. And this morning I wish I could have started here, because I know I'm not going to finish it. First, he states the fact that there is wisdom in his message, the way he preaches it. But he speaks it only to mature believers. Oh boy. See now, this is the, this is the part of things that we don't think about. You're not going to hear this too much. I'm telling you now, you're not. He speaks wisdom, the wisdom of God, but he only speaks it to a select group of people. Somebody says, oh boy, we're going into Gnosticism here. Yeah. You know what Gnosticism is? Some of you do, you all, some of you come to tell you us do, right? Secret wisdom, just for some. You remember the gospel of Judas? The whole idea that Judas was the head fellow? He was a good guy. But Jesus didn't put on, didn't tell everybody that. But he was revealing to Judas things that he wasn't revealing to other disciples. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. Notice what he says, yet, another contrast, we do speak wisdom among those who mature. He doesn't say, and remember this, he doesn't say to those who are spiritual. He says to those who are mature. Now believe it or not, the word for mature here is the word teleos. The Greek word teleos. It means to be complete, to be perfect. When Jesus says, be perfect even as your father's prayer, he's saying, be mature. Now, in the context here, in this text, 
It carries the idea of being mature in Christian experience and knowledge. And it describes an ongoing process, not necessarily a point, a finished product. In other words, as Christians, we can grow in our maturity. Now, as we shall see later on, Paul uses this term, teleos, not only to distinguish believers from unbelievers, but also to distinguish babes in Christ from adult believers. He also uses it to distinguish mature believers from fleshly believers. So you have to be careful when you go through this passage. You see, what Paul is saying, that even not all believers can receive the deep things of God. Not all believers can receive the depths of the wisdom of God contained in the gospel message. Some Christians don't like to hear that. They feel they could contain and hear everything. That's not true. He's saying the kind of message he preaches and that we're talking about in this passage, because there are other types, is the mature message. Now, in verse 1 of chapter 3, Paul actually substitutes the word spiritual for mature. This is what he says. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of the flesh. Now he describes what he means by the flesh, as to infants in Christ. He is describing a difference between maturity and immaturity, not carnality and spirituality. See, now this is where you get into the deep things. And some of you are going to be lost. That's true. I'm sorry. Not because I'm preaching it, because that's what the text says. Notice he says, I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food. Why? For you were not yet able to receive it. I'm going to soon see my little granddaughter, Winter Rose. I am not going to take her comforters or kong salad. She is not able to bear it. But now I might take us some, if I could find it, Nancy, remember we're supposed to do this, some baby prone juice. Because you see, she needs to get active a little bit. You see what I'm saying? <laughs> That's what Paul is saying here. He says, you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now, you are not yet able. Why? For you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? In other words, are you not walking as those who are unsaved, who do not have the Spirit of God indwelling you? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Paulus, are you not mere men? Are you not unsaved people? That's what he's saying. Are you not unsaved people? Because you behave that way? Because you're choosing one preacher over another? Are you not unsaved in the way you are behaving? I want you to see what Paul is doing now. This is a practical problem within the assembly. And what does he do? Paul gets into some of the deepest doctrine you want to find concerning preaching, the nature of the gospel, the nature of preaching found anywhere in the Bible. Just to deal with the practical problem of divisiveness. 
in the church. Who says doctrine isn't important? Notice both the terms flesh and infants are used in contrast to mature or spiritual. It is clear then from this passage that Paul adapted, and this is a challenge we have, Paul adapted both the content and the method of his delivery of the gospel to the spiritual capacity of those to whom he spoke. And the amazing thing is, he's telling the Corinthians, I can't talk to you about some of the deep things of the gospel. You're not in the group of the mature. Paul himself states clearly that the Corinthians church were babes, fleshly in the behavior. The writer of the Hebrews talks about the same thing in the book of Hebrews. But now, Paul goes deeper into his explanation of the wisdom of God that is manifested in the gospel message. Notice what he says in the last part of verse 6. He says that the nature of the gospel is not human. Talking about the wisdom in the gospel, God's wisdom. He says, however, it's a wisdom. The wisdom that he speaks is a wisdom which is not of this age. Meaning that it's not human. It does not have its source in the wisdom of the day. Even though you might call it a progressive day, a time of technology. He's saying, the wisdom that I am declaring has nothing to do with this age in which we live. It doesn't come from this age. It's not human. But not only that, he says its source is not human. He says, nor does it come from the rulers of this age who are passing away. They're temporal. That's the negative aspect. Then he goes, he says, but, notice the contrast now, the opposite of what he just says. The source is divine. We speak God's wisdom. The wisdom that Paul deals with is the wisdom that has its source in God, not in man. And he says, I do it in a mystery, the hidden mystery. <sighs> this is a deep passage. What Paul is saying here, we, now he's probably referring to Cephas and Apollos, because that's the way, that's the ones the people were fighting over. Some would come to hear Cephas, some would come to hear Apollos, but wouldn't go to hear Paul and so on. He says, now we, I want you to understand what we preach. We speak forth God's wisdom through the gospel. We have the same message. Therefore, if you are coming out just by looking at man, you are not looking at God. Because we are declaring the wisdom that comes from God. It's the same message. And if you choose man over the message, you are fleshly. So he's saying, we speak forth God's wisdom through the gospel which in keeping with his wisdom was the truth hidden in the past. That's what the mystery means. But is now being revealed through our preaching. See, this is the wonderful thing. When we proclaim the truth of the gospel and the fact now that anyone who places faith in Christ, Jew or Gentile, we are preaching a mystery. That is something that was once hidden, but now it is revealed through the preaching of the word. It is revealed to the apostles, to the Holy Spirit. Then the apostles passed it on to the church. And now we have it. And when we preach it, 
We're preaching the wisdom of God that was hidden, but is now revealed. What glorious news is that? In other words, this is a mystery not to be hidden from people, but rather it's a mystery that must be revealed through the proclamation of the gospel. What is this mystery? Let me read it for you. Ephesians chapter 3. Paul says, when you read, talking about his writings, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men. This is Ephesians chapter 3, verse 4, now verse 5. As it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. I want you to see that what Paul is implying in his preaching and the way he preaches is, is that the same way this mystery is revealed by the Spirit of God to him and the other apostles, and that this mystery is passed on, as it is preached, it is to be preached in the power of the same Spirit who revealed it to them. What is the mystery? To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow is and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's the mystery that is now revealed. That's the mystery contained in the gospel. And that mystery is a reflection, a manifestation of the wisdom of God. Even the angels are looking down now to see how God is working out his wisdom in the church. Notice what he says. Of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. That's his book. The unfathomable riches of Christ. And notice now, and see this is the glory of preaching to me, the word of God. This is the glory to bring to light... To reveal, to show what God is doing. To bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages have been hidden in God, who created all things. Why? So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church, to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. What is Paul saying? Paul says this wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of the cross that contains the wisdom of God, when it is proclaimed in the power of God, even the angels will be learning something of who God is. That's why I don't take preaching this word casually or carelessly. I close with this. Not only is the source of the gospel divine, but so is its nature. Notice what he says. Which God predestined before the ages to our glory. Now boy, this is one we could go to town on here. Predestined before the ages to our glory. This is an eternal message. It started long before we came on the scene. God had it planned out, mapped out, worked out everything. Just waiting to give it to us to proclaim. This is wonderful news. God had planned even before we were born or even before we were twinkle in the eyes of our parents. That through our acceptance of the gospel of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for us, 
we would share in his glory. Did you get that? This isn't a haphazard thought of God. Our security hasn't got to do with what we do or not do. Our security has to do with God's plan before the ages begun and he's put it into, practice, into action and, and listen, it will be accomplished. We will be glorified with Christ. How do I know that? Because God, the God of the universe, predestined it before the world began that I will share in his glory and I rest in that. That, my friend, is the wisdom and the power of the word of God. Bow with me, please, in a word of prayer. Man, I wish I could finish this. This is good stuff. Father, thank you for your word. What more can we say? Actually, your word has said it all. And so we thank you for your promise that it will not return void, but it will accomplish the purpose for which you send it forth today. And we give you thanks for that. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.